HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Ellie Lanning, Managing Director at Equilibra Ventures, a new platform from the founder of Kind Snacks that incubates, operates, and invests in entrepreneur-run businesses, helping them grow successful brands that generate enduring value. At Equilibra, Ellie leads the direct investment practice and partners with portfolio companies to identify the transformational areas of work at each stage of growth. Prior to Equilibra, Ellie helped to architect Kind's decade of unparalleled growth across a variety of cross-functional roles from EVP of corporate development to CMO to chief of staff. Ellie was instrumental in establishing Kind as one of the most trusted brands in the food space and scaling the company from 20 million to over a billion dollars in retail sales. Prior to Kind, Ellie worked in the marketing services industry, serving clients such as Kashi, Pop Chips, Bare Naked, Pinkberry, and Honest Tea. Welcome, Ellie. Thank you. It's nice to be here. I'm really, I got to say, kind of proud that I got through all of that without any, (laughs) you know, flubs or anything. Um, I mean, it's such an incredible story, kind story, your story. Um, I, I mean, tell me a little bit, just before we even start, like, what was it like when you first got to Kind and what was it like, you know, when you left and, and, the, and what, you know, what, how would you characterize that however many years it was? Yeah. So it was 12 years uh, on a day to day of, you know, building and growing something that actually came to feel very much like an extension of myself. Um, 
So I would say kind of the throughput and the one word that comes to mind is, you know, fortunate. Um, I think it's, it's rare to find something that you, um, you know, if you're not founding it yourself, which I wasn't, um, but find something that you feel so connected to and feel a degree of kind of personal ownership and pride over and then get to play a, a role in, you know, helping to put it on the map. I actually used to joke because um, I would wear kind gear when traveling or different things for work. And the way that people would like gush about some, you know, story or personal connection to the brand um, I said, gosh, it would have been great to, you know, have worked at kind as a middle schooler when life is so <laughs> tough. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what was the, what was happening at 20 million? I mean, now it seems, I mean, that seems very big to me already, but I know like 20 million to a billion is it's, it's like, I know it's still a baby at 20 million, but what was going on there at the time when you kind of came in? Yeah, so uh, you know, I met met Kind and Daniel uh, earlier. Daniel's the founder of Kind, um, kind of earlier in the journey, and he was at a stage where he was moving from, you know, working with kind of founding team of generalists to starting to, um, you know, build a team with a certain kind of specialization, um, and they had you know, at the time that I met the company from the outside in, I would say markers of potential and, um, you know, uh, and ability to create a successful platform. Some of those being, you know, distribution. So um, getting certain regions of Whole Foods, uh, Daniel himself had just, you know, persistently uh, chased down the Starbucks opportunity um, but it was, you know, it was still a time where I would say what that product was, which is also funny to think back on, but this is early 2000, uh, late 2009. Uh, and, you know, people didn't know what that product was because if you can believe it, we weren't snacking on things like bars, et cetera. That was, really a category that people were using for utility reasons. So whether it was, you know, triathletes who would have it and need some kind of sugar rush, or there were, you know, products kind of in that space that were more part of a diet regimen, but, you know, that product format as just a way to fuse together healthy ingredients for a portable snack, um, didn't really exist. And so at the time I joined, I came with more of a marketing background and really the work that we were doing was trying to train, you know, the consumer on what this is. I mean, (laughs) I still work, um, at Equilibra, one of my very first hires at kind, she now still works with us in the communications and marketing capacity, And we laugh all the time about the number of times we heard each other in those first two years say, you know, whole nuts and fruit bound together with honey, whole nuts and fruit. (laughs) And, and, you know, it it seems um, not all that complicated, but the power of repetition and pairing it with kind of new forms of reach 
was extremely important to making this a, you know, more frequently consumed kind of format and then kind, you know, the choice that consumers made as they came to it. Right. No, I mean, I love talking to you. And I I mean, I think in general, I love talking to people who have operated and built companies that found spaces that didn't exist before and kind of like put their elbows out and started building there, you know, whether it's like kombucha or perfect bar or you guys, like there's something about, you know, it's of course now everyone's like, like you said, you know, we all are used to bars, but Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember being a consumer and I remember there being this like hoopla about whole nuts and, you know, are they fattening literally like the, the discussion was so different back then. And, you know, you guys, it's like when you're creating sort of a new category, you're educating people, not only on the product and on the virtues of the product, but on like everything in the universe surrounding the product. And it's a completely different story. Um, so it's, it's, it's really cool. I think just to, you know, I love, I, we, we had a conversation a couple months ago. I took like three pages of notes and of course sent them to my team and they were thrilled with, um, <laughs> with my like, you know, new, I don't know, like missive from Ellie, like, these are all the things you need to do now. Um, but one of the things that we, you know, that I, I really appreciated when we did speak was, you know, you break things down. And so you have these different sort of stakeholders in, in these companies that power them forward. So, you know, you talk about team, you talk about the consumer, obviously, my guess is probably pretty, you know, predominant. And then obviously the customers who, you know, we've a lot on this podcast talked about the difference um, between the people, you know, the consumer out there who's in the end consumer and the people that you have to convince to like put you on the shelves. But, you know, I I think kind is kind of known for, and I guess it kind of has to be, otherwise there would be some problems, but it's known for team. It's known for um, the culture And I'd love to just hear, you know, you know, some essentials, you know, we're trying to build good cultures, things are pretty challenging, obviously, there's a lot going on in the world of labor and, you know, remote work and everything. But, you know, what did you, you know, what were the big takeaways, both at Kind, and then as you're working with emerging brands, as they grow, what are some things that you're seeing that you're either helping with or that you're thinking like, oh, that's good practices. Yeah. Well, I think it it all starts with, I'm a huge believer that, you know, a culture is, um, is a reflection and, and, um, the tone is really set by its leader and, or as you're developing leaders, right. Cause as a company scales, there's, multiple cultures, um, and kind of subcultures. And so it really kind of, it starts from there. Um, and there has to be a genuine and authentic care for it from the top where you're, you're fighting a losing battle is 
is my belief. And so, you know, we were fortunate um, in having a, a founder and a leader like Daniel, who, you know, I say like he's the most human human I've ever met, like his curiosity for the human experience and understanding the whole of a person was, you know, unlike what I had, it's actually why I, you know, joined kind from where I was, because it, it felt so different, even in just, you know, my first couple hours of, in that sense, interviewing with him, but that, you know, sets the tone, and then how you operationalize it from there has to be kind of in line with that, and so, I would say the things that, um, you know, because there's a lot of things that you have to do consciously and then things, it's almost what happens subconsciously by your authentic prioritization is probably where things matter the most because it's outside of, you know, the programs that you set and the things that um, you're knowingly doing. Um, It really is, how does it show up on kind of that day-to-day basis yeah um and so i i mean i would say actually the some of the most important things that we did at kind and if you talk to different team members one of the words that i would venture to guess would come up in their kind of first way of describing that was we set a ownership culture and so that started with the idea that structurally everyone who joined had a stake in the company. You know, they had a ownership equity grant was what we called them. But then, you know, lots of companies have that. We didn't want it, not enough companies have it, but um, we didn't want it to stop there. We wanted that to then permeate into a, a way of behavior, right? And so we really encouraged everyone like we never wanted to hear the words if someone was putting forward a trade program or a marketing program you know we never wanted to hear the words or the rationale that like well we have budget for it because we tried to get people to think like every dollar is your dollar don't think in budgets think of would you spend your dollar on this um or when you know you disagreed with the decision that was being taken you know, voice that because kind is, it's your business and it's your brand just as much as, you know, it is Daniel's. And we tried to not only like role model that and make sure that people saw that we, we tried to make sure that people saw it come to life in different forms. And so I am very comfortable speaking my mind. I'm comfortable, you know, aggressively pushing back on someone like Daniel And that was great. And people could see that and feel comfortable in it and know that Daniel kept people around like that and rewarded them. But we also wanted people to see, you know, more quiet leaders um, succeed and see how they put their difference of opinion on the table. And so it's trying to you know, kind of set the the values and the like core tenets of your culture, but then build the scaffolding around them to make sure that they show up on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, something I've been thinking a lot about lately is this remote team. And, you know, for a couple of years, people are like, wow, that, that must be really hard. And I was like, nah, you know, I think we all kind of got used to it. Um, and now I'm starting to think it is actually kind of hard. You know, it, it is hard to, to 
bring people into the world, you know, onboard people, create a culture. And I think, you know, I really liked what you said about sort of there are subcultures, right? The sales team culture is a little different from the ops team culture, which is different from the whole culture, right? It's like, I get that. It's like an amoeba almost. Um, But I think, you know, something that's been coming up a lot with other founders that I'm hearing is that, you know, we, I think a lot of us really do want to create, you know, for lack of over, you know, keep using the same word, like a good culture. I think we want to make people's lives enhanced. I think we Mm -hmm. want the team that we work with to enjoy the bulk of their work and their day because the world around us is really intense and toxic a lot of the time. And I think that a lot of people running companies are starting to feel a little bit resentful. Um, You know, that it, that it doesn't feel as much of a two-way street, that everything feels a little bit like um, it's gotten a little lopsided for some founders. And mm-hmm. I'm just asking because Daniel is sort of known as this incredibly generous man and a, and a good human. But clearly he also was able to... Um, Oh, he's tough. Yeah. I I mean, yeah. And that's the thing. And like, and sometimes when you're human, human, you also take things personally. And I think as leaders, we try really hard not to take things personally because, you know, these, these companies might feel very personal to us, but to a lot of people, they're where they work and that has to be okay. Um, So I guess a little bit more on like how, when did he... When was it kind of like, okay, but now you got to pull it together, people? Like, did he have those moments too? And what were those like? Yeah. Well, I think I would even go back to what you just said, where, you know, for founders, it is personal. It's your creation. It's, you know, what you've chosen to kind of give life to and give a lot of your life to. Um, And... I do actually believe like when you are in the early stages, you need to have from like a talent attraction standpoint, as much as possible, people who are coming in that same vein and spirit. And and so I, I think in some ways, my answer to you is it has to start at the screening of the talent. Right. Um, because, Upstream. you know, I even have yeah. it, <laughs> I, a team member from Kind who she worked with us from, I guess, 2011 to 2016, I want to place it. So she's been she's been away from there for a while, but she was one of our earliest brand managers. And she screenshot a picture of Daniel's Instagram post two days ago because he was wearing a polo with our old logo on it that we had updated in 2013. And she still feels a sense of brand guardianship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she hasn't been working there for, you know, yeah. over five years. And so I think it is so important because that's going to be like the team that sets the tone for as you grow and scale 
what will become more of a workplace where people are showing up and it's just where they work. Right. And you've got to, you've got to balance those things. You know, it took me probably a, a, a while to, um, understand those that had a relationship with kind that was more like a job. Um, but I came to understand it and also appreciate the important role that they played in what was our ultimate success. And so I, I think that the, the two way street has to, you have to try to design for some of that there. But, you know, the other thing I would say is that, um, you know, we have we have debates about this, and I think it depends on your leadership philosophy. So, you know, Daniel is someone that I would describe like he he loves to be loved, but it doesn't stop him from being really tough. And yeah. but he's tough in a way that respects your personhood, and he's tough in a way that sets a higher bar and expectation for the like the work that we do together. And so I think the other piece that is important is, um, you know, helping, helping people. And I spent a lot of time with, you know, some of our earlier career team members in understanding that a critique of the work or a critique of an idea or a critique of, you know, a program is not a critique of, of them. Yeah. You. Yeah. Um, it's an opportunity to learn and it's an opportunity to see things differently. Yeah. And actually when you kind of explore those differences is typically where you find like the better answers. Yeah. And I think actually that's really, really good advice to those of us on the side, giving the critiques, because sometimes I can even hear it in myself sometimes. And I don't, you know, I, I, I don't mean to, Right. But I think that sometimes giving a critique of work can feel like it is of them. And, mm -hmm. you know, explaining to some to people that like a critique of the work isn't a critique of you as a person also means that I have to be really, really careful with myself to make sure that it's not coming out that way. Because the truth is, is that when you are that small and you are every, every day matters. And, you know, we have all these headwinds and we're just trying to make stuff happen and get sauce out the door. And, you know, that it, it's hard not to start to feel a little bit like a, like a family and you're in it kind of together and, and the, the, everything gets a little bit blended, you know? And so you do end up sort of, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed vibe which, yeah, yeah. you know, doesn't make anyone feel particularly yeah. good. And, and I think that's really, that's just a really good little tidbit to, to keep my eye on. Also. Well, and I think making sure that if you're quick to find the critique, try to make sure you're also balancing it with, you know, spot recognition of things yep. done well. Um, and so that the overall experience is, um, is blended, but I think it's also, you know, to, to own what you are and what you offer. You know, I, when I was interviewing for, you know, over the time at kind, I was involved in hiring hundreds of people. And when I would interview, I was very, um, I was less in selling mode and more in here's who we are and what we are. And 
like, no, honestly, if you will like it. And so I told people, um, you know, because everyone's eyes kind of light up when they hear that equity is a component of, of something. And, you know, I was quick to follow on and explain to people, if you are someone who likes going like home at night, going to bed at night, knowing you are doing well in the eyes of your manager, then this is this not is a not place for you. for you. Right. Because, you know, in an equity and co-ownership environment, you are equally responsible to your manager as you are to, you know, the person getting on the phones trying to collect our funds from customers who you might not meet until like two months on the job to, you know, someone within the facilities group, like you are responsible to the collective. Yep. And that's the way we interact with each other. Like, and so it, it's, it's also just, and that goes back to, I think, kind of the, the screening and the onboarding yeah. of it's okay to be those things. Because by the way, there are so many people out there that are looking for that type of environment. This is just not that. Yep. Yep. No, that makes sense. Okay. That was really helpful. We're going to take a little break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about like selling stuff. <laughs> we'll be right back. Okay. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and their rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying voices from all across our food system. Today, I'm asking listeners to take part in our summer membership drive by helping sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, you can receive some great HRN swag, including the HRN cap, wine carrier, or a special spice set from Burlap and Barrel. By becoming a member, you'll play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member today. Thank you for your support. I'm back with Ellie Lanning, Managing Director at Equilibra Ventures. Okay, so now onto the consumer. We kind of, I, I broke this into stakeholders. We talked about team. That was super helpful. Consumer. Um, you know, one of the things I found really, uh, really helpful during our conversation when we spoke was that you kept saying the shelf is the context, Right. That when you have something new that people aren't used to, whether it's, you know, kind bar or kombucha, as I say, or sauce in a pouch in the refrigerated section and people don't necessarily know what to do with it or how it makes their lives better. 
that what's around us is very important. Um, and you talked about how you guys started sort of in a nutrition set and then eventually you were able to move into snacking. And I'm a, I, I want to hear more about that and what that was like. And, you know, we talk about it in retrospect, but I think it probably took a few years and then B, I think it speaks to something around our conviction with buyers saying, no, this is where we should be and here's why. And I just would love to hear your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll preface it by saying too, I mean, obviously this idea of shelf as context come, naturally comes more of, from more of a retail mindset. I think food as a, as a space when it's not a you know, part of a kind of daily regimen, which is a lot of food decisions for the consumer still is still a very retail leaning business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what I mean by shelf is context is we can spend all this time and energy thinking about outside of the store or away from store messaging. And so, you know, I'll use the example of kind here, this idea of, you know, in the early days, all we were saying was, you know, a healthy snack, uh, on the go, healthy snack, whole nuts and fruit bound together with honey. Here's a healthy snack. And that's what we were doing. And then you would get people to the store. And at that time we were shelved in, you know, the pharmacy set. Um, because that's where they were placing bars. bars. And that's, you know, so if yeah. I'm meeting you outside of the store and I'm saying healthy snack, you wouldn't logically walk into a store and say, I'm going to go find a healthy snack in the pharmacy. And so we had this, you know, disconnect between what our product actually was, you know, the way a consumer could understand it, and then the way that customers will, were still understanding it and merchandising it. Right. And so, you know, we just, we had to do a lot of work over the years. Um, And I think, you know, what you have to do then too is try to be the person or the party that is, um, you know, is kind of driving the merger of kind of consumer understanding and desire with customer uh, organizational issues right because you know for like for kind you had buyers who were sitting on a desk in a pharmacy section who really liked a brand like ours because even though we weren't a diet food or you know supplement type item we were selling well there so they Mm -hmm. don't want to lose that sale right but at the same time you have to help you know, the, the chain and like the retailer as a whole understand how consumers um, relate to your product, what they're buying you in the basket with, where it makes most sense to then place you um, and, you know, to, to stay convicted because those things do not happen um, quickly, but they're right. so important because, you know, you're marketing outside of and around the store, a fraction of people will see, you know, what, what is the most important thing is your pack itself and what it communicates, because you can control for that. 
and then trying to, even at your earliest stages, control for, you know, what your, um, it's not just your competitive set, but what your kind of informative set of products is so that the consumer can understand how to use you. Yep. No, that makes so much sense. And I mean, in terms of that sort of conviction and convincing, other than, you know, what else is in the basket? You know, how do you, how would you sort of say, okay, small brand, maybe a small refrigerated sauce brand that is trying to convince, you know, dairy buyers that we should not be in dairy, that we should be in produce and, you know, here's why, um, you know, we know that we're in the basket with avocados and onions and, you know, garlic and broccoli. But other than that, you know, what else, you know, without a lot of data, and even if we had access to a lot of data, I'm not even sure how we would take that to paint the picture. But, and I'm sure that there's a different picture for everything. And it's like a cap for every bottle. But do you remember some other some other data points that you use to sort of, you know, map out that conviction. Yeah. So, and I think that there's ways like data can be such an intimidating word, I think, especially, um, you know, when you're in your earlier stages and I don't, you know, what I encourage people is to not get, um, like overly scientific about it. In some cases, you know, we did a, we did a consumer survey when we were a you know ten million dollar revenue business. I want to say that was really just um, looking at what consumers would elect to replace us with, and you had consumers saying everything from cheese to nuts to uh, produce to, you know, you name it. And, but they didn't say supplements, right? (laughs) No no one said supplements, right? right? No, but that's a great question too. It's, that's a really good question. It helps helps then to say, what do they naturally associate us with? Right. Um, and you know, we took that, I think that the biggest thing I would say too, is, you know, starting small even, Um, and you know, we took that to try to get secondary placement opportunities. So whether that was, you know, getting, uh, shippers dropped in produce or, um, you know, like clip racks in, um, in dairy or, you know, where the consumer was thinking about us as a decision in relation to other things in their diet, we were trying to get secondary placement there first. And then we would try to see if that did anything through scanner data, right? Because then you start, that starts, you know, the, the, the buyer's desk, they're, they're really focused on velocities and, you know, dollar, uh, dollars per store. And so you start to then be able to, if you are successful at using, you know, consumer data, and I'm talking, it can be scrappy, it can be right. low light lit, but it is, you know, self-reported um, kind of information. And if you can get a couple of retailers who see it and try, um, you know, just different tests with you, then that can turn into velocity data, which turns itself into 
a more of a story for a wider audience of buyers. And so, right. um, and, and, you know, for us too, even as we pursued our migration from pharmacy and it wasn't a, you know, just a brand migration, it was a set migration from pharmacy to in line with food. We started small by saying, because for us, it was a hypothesis too. And I think you have to have that humility. Um, and so we started small and then once we saw like, no, okay, this hypothesis is, is, you know, proven out. Then we took an approach where we focused on, you know, a couple of like big win anchor consumer or anchor customers where, you know, if they move their sets there, it would have other retailers follow suit. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're doing little things like that in our own way. It's interesting to sort of, you know, there are only three real sort of refrigerated areas of the Mm -hmm. store, but you know, we're in all of them depending on the store and depending on how innovative the buyer is and where they're putting stuff like us. You know, I think a lot of plant-based has sort of fallen into dairy over the last decade, you know, probably because produce buyers tend to be more commodity focused and meat buyers similarly and dairy buyers just kind of anything that came their way, they kind of had to make room for and get rid of a yogurt skew, probably. Mm -hmm. Um, And now I think, you know, it's interesting to just watch the stores try to figure out. And I I mean, I loved one of the things you said, too, when we were having our conversation, like, you know, people aren't necessarily shopping by the attribute, they're shopping for like, how they use it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always think back to Kroger when they had those like three aisles in every store of like the healthy organic stuff that was just like wood paneled and a little yeah. more expensive yeah. than the rest of the store. And then it took them, you know, several years to sort of integrate all of that into the main store. And I don't know. I mean, I think it went pretty well, but I would imagine that you know, some of those brands probably needed more babysitting for those first couple of years. So maybe it wasn't the worst thing, but I guess I'm interested in your sort of thoughts around, you know, usage versus attribute. Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, I would, I would say, I think more general pop thinks in occasions. I think that there are certainly people who are following who either have, you know, uh, dietary requirements or who are making a choice to follow, you know, a, a stricter kind of way of eating that would naturally take you more into kind of content claims or attributes. Um, but, you know, I think actually a great example of, um, you know, where we're seeing a lot of traction in what I call more occasion-based merchandising is with one of our partner companies, um, Belgian boys. And so, you know, this is, um, I think you said, you know, Anouk, but Anouk I and do, Greg I are, do. I love Anouk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They are Belgian. The, you know, the, um, their product portfolio, their brand, their company is all, you know, kind of a, in tribute to their heritage And so they had an interesting situation where 
you know, they had this line of products that they were creating in the breakfast set. So crepes, mini pancakes, brioche French toast, etc., which for them as Europeans was more of a fresh, right. i.e. refrigerated um, category and product type. And that's the way it was meant to be experienced in the U.S. marketplace that was sold products like that were sold in frozen, mm-hmm. which was tough for them because, you know, they're like, that's not how our products are you know, that's not what best serves our products and the product experience, but they were a young brand too. And so they fell a little bit into this, where you get, where you get placement or where you get picked up, but they did have a few customers that, you know, took to their view of refrigerated and also thought, you know what, if I merchandise these things with accompanying products and frame an occasion set. So in, in some of their major customers, they're placed next to eggs. If you think right. about, you know, waking up and making a easy, kind of fresh and breakfast. Eggs. Mm-hmm. exactly. And so they had a couple of customers who were willing to see it, you know, the way that they saw it. And that also felt like that would stick and be a better shopping experience for their their consumers and they proved it out at a couple of um you know major customers and then when we came on we were trying to give her kind of the confidence and backing to say okay now let's drive that decision like right. distribution wide because for the consumer it's not good because we know the consumer today shops multiple banners right we're not right. loyal to one uh you know, one destination. And so if I come in and I find you in refrigerated somewhere, but you know, I don't know to look for you in frozen elsewhere, like it's not the optimal experience for who you start to build as a branded consumer. And so, you know, let's do it now and let's be willing to take on the risk of falling out of distribution Mm -hmm. and just knowing over time we'll build back and we'll build the selling story to win those doors back in the right place. And so that's been, you know, what we've been at work, you know, doing with them this year. Um, and I would say that some of the things that were really scary decisions for her to make, like she she won them back much more quickly than than she and we would have anticipated. I mean, it, it's amazing, too. And I think that's, you know, going back to, you know, people ask a lot, like, what are you looking for in an investor? I mean, I think that's exactly what you're looking for in an investor, Right. There's there's a lot going on right now with the investor world. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, you know, I have a lot of founder friends who feel like they had all this support and now they're a little bit like, wait, aren't you where are you? You know, and now all of a sudden people are sort of like, when are you going to be profitable? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and they're like, you knew when we were going to be profitable six months ago. And that hasn't changed, really. Um So, I mean, speaking of that, I think, um, you know, what would you say, A, you're looking for um, in the companies that you partner with, but I think more importantly, probably is, you know, really what those companies should be looking for, especially now, especially in the current environment, 
from their investor partners, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I mean, we, everyone says, you know, you want to have someone who, you know, has done this before, you know, obviously someone who doesn't need to make a return in four months or whatever, but I think you're thinking about this a little bit differently. Um, and so I guess I'm curious to hear, I, obviously you and Daniel have put a lot of thought into this, so I'd like to hear yep. your thoughts. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's interesting and it's interesting actually crossing over from operator to, you know, I, I call us kind of operating partners with capital. Um, I, I don't even know if I'd say investor, although that is very technically speaking, you know, mm-hmm. the, some of the business that we're in. Um, and crossing over at the the time that, you know, we are, because we're just in our infancy as the Equilibra platform now. But, um, you know, I think that it's funny because I've talked with more investors in the space and, you know, what they want to see as like a growth trajectory over time. Um, it's, you know, I look at that and I say it's great from a like financial lens, but I think that, you know, we're, I think, more open to a winding path to a growth mm-hmm. journey. Um, and in fact, there's some things that I would tell you about that, that we even prize a little bit more because we feel like then we're partnering with entrepreneurs and teams who have been tested a bit mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. have have the fortitude that any journey is going to require, um, right. you know, for kind, we had one that was, you know, more full of successes than otherwise, but we had setbacks and, yep. you know, you, you need, um, you need a team that is like, is quick to get themselves back up and, you know, move on and charge ahead from there. And I think, you know, when I look at the last several years where, um, you know, growth has been there, consumer spending has been there, uh, dollars and funding are easy to come yeah. by. Cap you know, is low, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're, you're seeing, I think these next couple of years will probably be, really shake out like who came to this industry for, you know, kind of rose colored glasses, wealth Mm -hmm. creation opportunities and who came to this industry because they have something that they're, you know, passionate about. They have, you know, a product and a brand that they feel will make a difference. And yeah, because even just from like, you know, surviving what's ahead, I think that's where you're going to see like the entrepreneurial fortitude um, really be tested and then be in some cases the the deciding factor of who wins. Yeah. And I think, you know, to thinking about sort of, you know, we can talk about switching over from the pharmacy over to snacks. Right. And in retrospect, that seems like somewhat obvious and of course now the the bar world is totally different from the way it was and it's interesting because you know we had an experience where we were in an account and we just weren't in a particularly like good part of the store they really they wanted us to be in there it was next to you know 
I think the the eggs and the sour cream, that's not really where we belong. Um, we were, you know, doing okay there, but ultimately it wasn't strong enough of an account for us to need to sort of spend what we would need to spend to kind of keep it flowing there, you know, and there's, then there's other accounts where it's almost like the lightest lift ever. And we're selling, you know, 30 units of chimichurri a week or whatever it is. So we made the decision that we were going to sort of gracefully back out and hopefully go back to that retailer in another set later on. There are investors that they're, they're not interested necessarily in the nuances of that. They want to see growth month over month, year over year. They want to see, you know, last 12. They want to see, you know, sort of, and, and even though I think there's been sort of this, like, we want to see the quality of revenue, not just the top line revenue. I don't know that, honestly, that's been 100% the case. I think people have been saying that for a few years, but I think top line revenue has been probably the, the ultimate driver and sort of brand, you know, brand FOMO to some extent, like a, almost like a momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is kind of neat to hear you talk about, you know, and I think there is one other piece to it too, which is that when you are a primarily wholesale company, you, it's al- it's almost harder to be, um, you know, I think the, I've said this before, like the digitally native companies, when, you know, the cost of acquisition was so low, got a little bit, it was like easier almost to kind of like get over that, you know, five, $6 million top line threshold, not necessarily looking at the bottom line so much, but easier from a top line perspective than, you know, a company like Belgian Boys or us where you're, you are, you know, knocking down every door and making sure that your pouches and your packs look good on shelf and you're filling voids and you're dealing with, you know, UNFI nonsense. And, you know, it's just, it, it almost trains you harder at the beginning. Do you think? Yeah. That's yeah. Accurate? And I think, I, I mean, and that was, I would say one of the things too, that was, you know, different. Um, Anuk and Greg had, you know, bootstrapped their way to the time where we met them, where we felt like they were sitting on some of the early makings of, um, you know, a very scalable business. Right. And they found their way very capital in a very capital efficient manner. And so, you know, I, I love that about them. And it was very similar to kind of how we operated, um, you know, at kind going back to that idea of like, spend every dollar as though it's your own. It's not, you know, like company bank account that you have, absolutely like no relationship with. Um, and, and so, you know, it's not to say that by the way, we're not talking with them about what is out ahead and, you know, where consumer spending may shift and what we need to be prepared for and whatever, but this idea for them and their team of going back to, you know, a more fiscally prudent way of, operating while not starving, you know, growth opportunities is much more natural than trying to, you know, retrain a culture that has 
grown uh, in, you know, in a place of being kind of flush with, with funding. But, I remember Anouk teaching me how to fill out like the, the, you know, Kroger has this whole, like, like their platform for just like trying to register a single SKU is literally like 87 steps and like 14 pages of paperwork. And then she was walking me through it. I I remember, and I was like, is there someone who can help me do this? And she's like, probably, but you know, I just did it myself. And I was like, okay, you are definitely <laughs> cut from a very awesome cloth. Um, I, I was like distracted and annoyed. And she was like, no, no, just keep focused. Um, but So speaking of the economy, so, you know, I had someone say to me the other day, can you, can you just come out with like a much less expensive skew that's shelf stable in a category that everyone knows in the next six months? And I said no. Um, to me, it's about showing value, not necessarily, you know, trying to race to the bottom because I don't. I've never seen that really work for anybody. Um, but I would imagine that you're talking about, you know, showing value with the brands that you work with, and I imagine that you thought about it a lot in all of the years that you were with Kind. Some of them were boom years, but I would imagine there were, you know, a couple of years of challenging snack years during that. Do you have any advice around sort of like creating that that connection for the consumer to show them the value of what you're bringing them as a product and a brand? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think some of it is about value. I think some of it too is maybe about refocusing some of your efforts and your investment. And so, uh, you know, I think as, and we're still, you know, seeing consumer spending be be strong. And so I don't think we've seen the, the turn to some decisions. So I think it's about knowing your consumer, right? So know who they are, know what's, you know, what stage they're at, what kind of economic level they're at, where you think they're going to be impacted or not. How does that match with um, kind of your customer set? But I think even more so, you know, some of the things that I would be thinking about right now are, you know, now is maybe a time as people start feeling a greater sense of insecurity and maybe tighten their spending I think what you see people do as kind of a first thing is that they they tamp down on, you know, trial. So I'm not spending my money on things that I don't know what they do for me or what they deliver. I'm going with my like steady eddies and my established, I'm holding on to my established kind of purchases and behaviors first and foremost. And so I think of, okay, how do we invest behind more like frequency driving programs? And so how do we shift to have the consumers that we've already gained, whose considerations that we're already in, how do we make sure we're remaining in that? How do we drive greater frequency of that? You know, so for a brand like yours, is that really getting more into recipe ideas for various like Breakfast. days of their right. week mm-hmm. or meal types or um, and and spending a bit more of kind of time and resources 
getting those who buy you to buy more of you while understanding that, you know, your dollars may be a lot less efficient on trial when consumers are in a place of concern. That makes so much sense. That was, that was so helpful that I actually think I'm going to not ask my last question because <laughs> I just want to sit with that one for a second. But, you know, it, it really is interesting. It's interesting how much is not in our control. And then it actually is interesting to think about how much actually is in our control. You know, being really, really deliberate about the messaging around, you know, not trying to win over people who you haven't won necessarily as much but really trying to lean into the people who already know you and like you and just giving them other ways to use the product and other times and occasions. That's like a beautiful tidbit. Well, I mean, I feel great. How do you feel? (laughs) Good. 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 Um, Ellie, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, This was super helpful. And thank you for like a little window into the world of kind and Equilibra and Daniel. Um, Armin, I want to thank you as always for engineering and making this whole thing happen. Um, listeners, thank you so much for your notes, for your DMs, for tuning in as always. It's just great that we can be, you know, kind of in the sauce together. And um, I'll be back next week with another episode. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.